The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We've been in 1 Corinthians for some time now, so uh, maybe you have your place marked already and you can just flip over a few more pages. Um, Pastor Scott is not with us this morning. He is in Kentucky. He's there already. And he is, um, he is teaching this week, preaching at a camp. So we, we remember him in prayer. Um, if you mistook me for him, then I don't know what to tell you. He's a little bit, he's a little bit taller. And I'm a little better looking. That's right, I don't have it. You know, while I'm thinking about that, Actually, I won't go there. <laughs> I'm very excited to preach to you this morning, and I'm thankful for a pastor who allows me to do such a task with such great frequency. The title of what I am going to deliver to you this morning is Fearing God, Persuading Others. And it will become apparent in a moment from whence I gather that title. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we will begin. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We have the words on the screen. Paul here. If you've ever read much Paul, you understand that his style can seem somewhat erratic. He kind of weaves in and out of different thoughts. And you're wondering, some of you who are very linear thinkers like me, and Paul, where are you going with all this? You jump over here and then you jump over here. And um, maybe these kinds of things work very well with our postmodern minds that aren't too accustomed to connecting dots. But I like to connect dots. But I hope to demonstrate that Paul's argument here is very intentional and it is not accidental and it is not careless. It is not haphazard. Please read with me. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, this is in verse 11, by the way, I probably didn't throw you that bone. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And Paul goes on here in defending his apostleship and defending his, even his sanity. Many people were saying, Paul, you're insane for doing what you're doing, and you're not credible. Many times in the New Testament, Paul, or a few times at least, Paul has to defend uh, who he is and his own, his own apostleship, and that's what he, he's doing here. He picks back up in verse 13, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who might live, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, this is the purpose, notice, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There is no more countercultural message than that. That there is a Savior who saves you to live not for yourself. Picks up again in verse 16. Uh, Verse 16, he speaks about we regard no one according to the flesh. Verse 17, he goes straight back into 
explaining what the gospel is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, notice this, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us, notice he can't even finish the sentence without saying this, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, the very message that has changed us. So you, of course, see why the title of what I'm delivering to you is what it is, Fearing God, Persuading Others. These two do not go alone. Therefore, and I believe... Someone may correct me, from, uh, correct me later, I, I'm a few years removed from RAs, but I think this is the, their, their motto verse. If it's not, it should have been. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making God, uh, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, oh, and don't miss this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then as we stick our feet into verse into chapter 6 here, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Pray with me. Lord, we are bereft of any good thing. And when we approach your word, we are doubly aware of this reality. That we bring nothing to you but our sin. But in this mystery, this glorious reality called the gospel, you redeem people by making your son to be sin who knew no sin. We don't understand it completely, but we thank you for it. For by it, we have been changed. Amen. Go back to verse 11, if you will, where we, where we began. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. This verse, I will go ahead and be upfront about this. This verse is a case in point for everything that I'm about to say over the coming moments. Uh, if I was a little more creative, but I'm not. If I was a little more creative, perhaps I could preach the whole sermon just from this verse. So please do not miss what this verse has to say because it, it sets the stage for everything that follows. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, comma, we persuade others. It seems evident that what Paul is trying to communicate here is that the motivation that we get for persuading others comes out of our, the depth of our knowledge of the fear of the Lord, this, this fear, this awe, this appreciation, this, this understanding that He is holy, that He is other than us, and, and we fear Him. Of course, we're not scared of Him. Maybe that is in order sometimes. But we have this great appreciation, this worship for him that is called fear in Scripture. 
And what Paul seems to be communicating here is that a natural outcome of having the fear of the Lord is wanting to persuade others. And I would contend to you that if you have no impetus to persuade others, perhaps it is is because you are lacking the fear of the Lord. Paul says this is what motivates us. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He says if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If, If we are in our right mind, it is for you in verse 13. He's combating these charges that, Paul, you're foolish. And Paul actually says, Paul doesn't say I'm not foolish. He says, as a matter of fact, you're right on. Because if you go back and read what I wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 1, our message is foolishness. And only a foolish person would take a message like this and preach it and have any expectation that sinners would come to God through such a foolish, foolish message called the gospel. I said, you're right. You call me a fool. I am a fool. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, where's the the debater of this age? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness, perhaps your translation says, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He says, you want to call me a fool? Well, by your standards, you're right. I am a fool. And I'm okay with it. From now on, he says in verse 16... I'm sorry, in, in, verse, um, in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, and here it comes again, this purpose statement, that those who, might, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. You hear 2 Corinthians 10, just a few chapters later, you hear this echo in the back of your mind. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says right here, uh, we are not commending ourselves. We're not boasting about ourselves anymore. We're boasting in Christ because that is the only ground on which we have to stand. Verse 14 and 15, he, he explains the gospel. I call this the gospel explained round one because he does it at least three times. He goes into an explanation of the gospel, comes back out, talks about the the implications, back into an explanation of the gospel, back out to an explanation of the implications, what it means for us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. This is one of those times when I'm very thankful that Paul does not use Simile. You know what a simile is? I know you do if, if you remember anything about English class. Simile is when you use the word like or as to describe something. I'm very thankful that Paul did not say if anyone is in Christ, he's like a new creation. He said if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And this is this message, this gospel message that we take. It is a message and it is a ministry. 
And these are the things we are going to talk about today. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Notice what kind of message this is. It is a message of reconciliation. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And before he finishes the sentence, not only did he reconcile us, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul can't even finish his sentence before saying that this gospel message cannot be something that just affects you. It has to be something that affects you to the point that you take it to others. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How beautiful. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Many of you have a checking account. I worked at a bank for a season and then I was raptured out of there. (laughs) And most of the time, when people had a problem with their banking account, it was because they had made an error in balancing their checkbook. I'm sure no one in here has ever done that. But what you do, they call it reconciling your your account, reconciling your your statement with your checkbook, right? You get the statement every month, and then you you get your, your checkbook to see if you have as much money as you thought you had. And now you can do it all online. To make the two right, to make the two agree, your statement and your checkbook. Make sure that they are on friendly terms with one another. Many of us have to reconcile with, with one another. Isn't it interesting that this ministry that we're giving is a ministry of reconciliation? Meanwhile, many churches are not marked by reconciliation. And Paul says this is the one virtue you must be marked by. Because you have been reconciled to God and now you take this ministry to others. But how can you ever take this ministry of reconciliation to others when you're not reconciled to one another yourself? It doesn't make any sense. But in Christ, God was reconciling, making them peaceful. Reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting That's a huge word. Don't miss that. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Notice, this thing called the gospel, we throw this word around, and and sometimes we can can reduce it to the Romans road, and, and I understand for the purposes of sharing the gospel, you can't read the book of Leviticus to someone on their doorstep when you're trying to to show them who Jesus is. I guess you could. But this gospel message is this one story from Genesis to Revelation. How, how much of the Bible is gospel? 100% because it is one story of God redeeming his creation back to himself. But we must understand these two truths about it. It is a message and it is a ministry. And I would contend that Paul would say, if you want to take something away from this passage, take away this truth, that this gospel is a message and it is a ministry. Now, if we're going to be a church who is active in the gospel, as Philemon says in a moment, we'll look at active in sharing our faith so that we may have the full knowledge of everything we have in Christ, we must understand that it is a message and it is a ministry. I'm very happy. You understand... um, 
just down the road for us in the coming years, I suppose, right across from, from Man and Big Curran, there's a, there's a development coming in. And a whole lot of homes, is it like 90? Is that right? 90 homes. Two people live in every, let's say three people live in every home. I'm just joking. It's like 270, is that right? All right. 270 people in our community just like that. And I am overjoyed to hear that people are already asking the question and talking about this. Are we going to be ready to meet the needs of our community right now with the message of the gospel, with this ministry with which we have been entrusted? And are we going to meet them uh, as our community continues to grow? And I would argue to you that if we're going to do this, we must understand that this gospel is a message and it is a ministry. Let me, let, let me explain what I mean by this. Many have tried to construe the gospel. They've tried to understand the gospel as a ministry without understanding it as a message. I'll tell you a story. I've got a friend who was called to the ministry later in life, and his passion absolutely inspires me. He, uh, he had, a, uh, he had a, an awesome job two-story house, and he built this house himself. They were like hidden passageways you could take. This little miniature Biltmore house, you know. He had a nice pool, all this stuff. Got called to the ministry, sold it all, moved into a rental house just so that he could be mobile. God, I don't know where you want me to go, but I'll just move here until you tell me. But he took a group of men to a closed country on a mission trip. And I was excited to hear what they were going to say when they came back. And they went under the guise, of course, when you go into a closed country, you have to have a front, right? He went under the guise of of, uh, teaching sports and doing basketball camps, which is a useful tool. And when we got back, I was just waiting. Tell me about when you shared the gospel with them. And he said, you know, we weren't able to share the gospel. It's a closed country and everything. But at the the last day, we gave them T-shirts. And those T-shirts had, had our ministry name on them. And, and, man, those kids, they don't have anything. So we just we gave them all these T-shirts, man. We had all these extra T-shirts. We gave them T-shirts. And we know, I just know, he said with tears in his eyes, I just know that every time they put that T-shirt on, they will feel the love of Christ. And many people thought that was awesome. But, folks, that's a tragedy. Because even if those kids feel any kind of love when they put a t-shirt on, they will not know the man. They will not know the identity of the one who loved them. The gospel has to be a message. It has to be a message of words. This is why Paul told Timothy, preach the word. In season and out of season, preach it. It is a message of words. Al Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, told a story. Actually, I was, I was listening to him in a, in a lecture. It was more of a sermon. He was a, it, was a, it was kind of funny. It was a, a conference called Expositional Preaching. And he endeavored to get up there on the stage and talk to a bunch of preachers about why expositional preaching is such a bad idea. He said, all right, folks, I'm going to give you the top ten reasons why preaching the gospel, preaching it like we do from a pulpit 
on a doorstep, across from a coffee table, why, and expositionally, why preaching the gospel is such a bad idea. He gave us the top ten reasons. He said preaching is bad because people these days, you know, back in the Bible, they, they were an oral culture. They understood. They, they could listen to story, but today people don't have the attention span. So we don't preach. We shouldn't preach anymore. Preaching's a bad idea. And he said, uh, who, wants to, who, who, cares, who cares who the Jebusites were anyway? Expositional pre- preaching through books of the Bible. Who, who cares what the Jebusites were anyway? Number two. And number three, he kept, he kept going on. And, and about the fifth or sixth time, we were looking around wondering if somebody was going to go call the trustees because our president has gone rogue on us. Telling a bunch of seminary students why preaching is a bad idea. And then at the end, he said this. And I tell you what, I don't cry very often. Or scream. But I just about did. I, man, I gave a, a fist pump and my microphone came off. <laughs> and he said, preaching is a bad, bad idea. But it doesn't make any difference. Because it is the method that God has ordained to bring sinners to himself. He said, preaching is such a bad idea that only a sovereign God would use it to call sinners to himself. If we used our own little methods, of course people would would come, we would think, but then the glory would be ours because, look, I, I figured it out. I found the golden nugget. But no, only God, a sovereign God, uses such a terrible idea to bring glory to himself by calling men out of their sin and in to marvelous light. He uses foolish things, things that our studies and our pew reports say are terrible ideas. But we remember the, the voice of Paul in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes through hearing. It is a message, and it must be preached from the pulpit, on the doorstep, and across the coffee table. A man can't even propose to his prospective future wife without words and a message if I proposed to Whitney a few years ago, get down on one knee. I just think I'm tying my shoe. But then I pull a ring out. She, a smile comes over her face. And she wants to hear those words. Because it's the words that communicate the reality that I love you and I want to have you for the rest of my life. And many of you men know there's nothing more frightening than not hearing anything back. <laughs> Had a friend who videotaped his proposal and his, his, um, his girlfriend, now wife, his wife, just said, oh my gosh, for about five minutes straight on video. And then finally he was like, well, what's the answer? Tell me some words so that I can know the reality. And while that's funny, this is far more serious. That if we do not tell people the words, they will be forever wondering what has changed us. It is a message. Now, while some have tried to understand the gospel as a ministry, but not as a message, other people have tried to understand it as a message without a ministry. Without it being a ministry, understand. Folks, I went to a Christian college And we had chapel twice a week. There are people there who are more lost than a ball in high weeds who could explain the gospel message better than some of the ministry majors because they heard it and they listened, but they didn't believe it. 
The gospel to them was a message, but it had not come into their lives and done ministry. It must be both. This message becomes a ministry much in the way as the parable of the, um, of the talents. You can turn there if you like. It's in Matthew 25. I've, I actually brought up a second Bible just so I wouldn't have to be flipping back and forth. It's, it's going to be up on the screen. Matthew 25, verse 14. Notice what happens here. And think about this in the context of our usefulness. Think about this in the context of how you in your life share the gospel with words. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Remember that word? Entrusted. The master is entrusting his servants with something. Much like God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.19. The master entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents. To another ten. Each according to his ability. Uh, his ability. Uh, another one he gave one. And then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them. He made five more. So also the one who had two made two more. And he who had received the one went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He took the treasure and he hid it away. The first two had a pretty good return on investment. ROI. 100%. But the third hid his treasure away, put his light under a bushel, as it were. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five more. His master said to him, What we all hope we hear and what many preachers say at funerals, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me too. I have made two more. His master said to him the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent. And notice the long explanation he gave for why he didn't do his job. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. That's a long, that's a far cry from well done, good and faithful servant. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and I gather where I scattered no seed. Yet you all, uh, Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with some interest. At least put it into a banking account and get the 0.05% that you can get right now. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10. And here it comes. Buckle up. For to everyone who has... Uh, who, everyone... Who has will be given, more will be given, and to him, uh, and he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and here it comes. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, 
in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't have to pull some kind of emotional gymnastic up here on the stage to get you to understand what is being conveyed here. You understand, my job, the word expository, by the way, expository preaching, all that means is to just expose what is there. That's all I'm doing. I'm showing you what is here. Notice, this is not a warning to the, uh, this is not a warning to the murderers and to the rapists and to the pedophiles. It is a warning to those who call themselves servants and are useless. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not without precedent in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 3, we see the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of... Of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you, or, or I, I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is frequently preached like this. The problem with the church in Laodicea was that they were not on fire for God. Okay. Not quite what we're what what John or Jesus is getting at here, I believe, because what the, the reality was Laodicea was a town with no springs. At another town, Ephesus was or Colossae, doesn't matter. One town had hot springs. And they built this system of aqueducts to pipe this water in. And we're Laodicea. We don't have any springs. We've got to get our hot water from this city. And there's another city over here, six or seven miles away, that has cold water. Cold water is good for drinking. The hot water is believed to be good for healing. The problem is, by the time that water traveled that six or seven miles, the hot water wasn't hot and the cold water wasn't cold. And the problem was not uh, that the water had gone bad. The problem was that it was useless. The hot water could not heal any longer and the cold water was not good for drinking. So when the Laodiceans heard this, they understood John, you're not asking, Jesus, you're not asking us to be on fire for God necessarily. You're asking us to be useful in the master's service. So we understand verses 17 and following. Actually, um, verse eight, let's begin in verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5, 18. That's where we are now. I don't want to confuse you. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, there's that word, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Why does Paul use such strong language? Ambassador is a pretty loaded term. You understand, uh, ambassadors... Don't send regular messages. Cell phones do that. Computers do that. Telephones, smoke signals, send ordinary kinds of messages. But an ambassador sends life and death messages. 
An ambassador sends nation rising and nation falling. Uh, An ambassador sends nuclear war type messages. So when he calls us ambassadors, when you send an ambassador in, usually there is some kind of urgency afoot. So why the urgency? Why the strong language, the strong description of who we are? Go back to verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. This is right before where we picked up. It's important to get the context. I encourage you to go home and read the whole thing. Actually, start at the beginning of the book. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The reason Paul talks with such urgency And the reason he uses such strong language and talks about this message that must become a ministry that goes out and saves sinners is because there is a reality called the judgment. This is a literal, actual thing that is in our future. And I hope you believe it. Because I think we all know folks who are not ready. He prefaces everything he says about being a minister of reconciliation with this truth that there is a coming day when it will be too late. By this time, we're like, okay, I'm an ambassador. There's no better word. There's a message. Someone has to take the message. Ambassador is a perfect term to use there. Paul says, thank you. I thought so too. The pattern continues in verse 21, weaving back into his explanation of what the gospel is. Notice he's coming in and out. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's what I don't want you to miss. We mentioned earlier, I feel like I'm going back and forth, verse 11, where we started the whole in a nutshell, what I'm going to say today. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So while there is this reality that our fear of the Lord will be evidenced in how we persuade others, there is also another reality that we, that we grasp from Philemon. There's only one chapter, Philemon, verses 4 through 6. Read this with me on the screen. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Okay, and here it comes. Buckle up. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? I pray that the sharing of your faith. Now, what he means there, when, we, when I tell you, hey, guys, go out and share your faith today. You all understand what I mean. I'm telling you, go out and and share the gospel. Now, it's not exactly what is being said here. It's a broader truth, but it it incorporates that. In other words, it's this fellowship, this this, the students, koinonia, this fellowship of the faith, this uh, sharing of the faith, this communication of the faith, participation in the faith, all of which involve 
sharing this gospel message. You can't participate in the faith without sharing the gospel. You can't communicate it without sharing it. You can't share it without sharing it. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Well, effective for what? Effective, I'm going to take a little liberty, for so that you may have the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Jesus Christ. There is this reality that seems to be inescapable. That until you are active in sharing your faith, there are things about you that are true and there are things about God that are true that you will never know until you are sharing your faith. So you see the the spiral going on here? 2 Corinthians 5, if you fear the Lord, you'll share your faith. Philemon 4, if you share your faith, you'll know the Lord and fear him. 2 Corinthians 5, okay, I... I shared my faith, now I fear the Lord more. I fear the Lord more, so I want to share my faith more. And when I do that, I fear the Lord more. And it keeps going, and this thing is called the normal Christian life. Except no substitutes. So I hope you see that this one story, this message that must become a ministry is the very reason why Genesis 3.15 tells us that there is one coming. It's a few verses after sin entered the world. There is one coming, Jesus Christ. His heel will be bruised, but he will crush the head of, of Satan and of sin. This is why Moses said, God, show me your glory. This is why Isaiah said, woe to me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, living among people of unclean lips, only to say three verses later, Lord, here I am, send me. What can make a man go from one extreme to the other like that? Woe is me, here I am, send me, other than the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives. It is the very reason why Malachi warned, surely a day is coming, God's wrath will burn like a furnace. Most furnaces are hot. That's why Micah 7 says, as for me, I watch and I wait on the Lord because there is coming a day when it will be here. The church has to, it's the reason the church has to strengthen The weak joints strengthen that which is weak. It's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And why he said, Make straight the way of the Lord. It's why Paul took pains five times, received from the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a day and a night adrift at sea, in danger. This is why Paul told Timothy, Preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. In season and out of season, Timothy preached the word. That's why we hear the call here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that says, Be reconciled to God and take this ministry. That's why we hear, we understand what Jesus means when he says, Forgive them for they know not what they do. And why Jude said, Contend for the faith. We must keep it pure. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. That's why Jesus says in Revelation, Surely, I am coming soon, and it is why John says in response, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So because this one gospel message must become the ministry of the church and the sole ministry of our church, or else we have run our race in vain. We hear that final warning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, that one verse we went in on. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him. Isn't it amazing how God allows us to do that? 
working together with him then, we appeal to you, do not receive the grace of the Lord in vain. And that is my exhortation to you. I'm going to read from an old hymn I found this last night. It's derived from Matthew chapter 25, which I referenced. It says this. Because I have been given much, I too must give. Because of thy great bounty, Lord, each day I live. I shall divide my gifts from thee with every brother that I see who has the need of help from me. Because I have been sheltered, fed by thy good care, I cannot see another's lack and I not share. My glowing fire, my loaf of bread, my roof safe shelter overhead that he too may be comforted. Because love has been lavished so upon me, Lord, a wealth I know that was not meant for me to hoard like the third servant. I shall give love to those in need, shall show that love by word and deed. Thus shall my thanks be thanks indeed. Let's pray. Lord, your word is living and active. It is quick. It is more powerful than any force we have ever encountered. Sharper than any two-edged sword. And whenever we are confronted with your word, Lord, the reality remains that we are either changed. We are, we are changed. We are either changed for the better or for the worse. We either respond in softness and suppleness saying, Lord, here I am, send me. Or we respond with a calloused heart turn cold toward you. And that is why this time is so very crucial. Because no one leaves the same. So I ask and I beg on the mercy that is found in the grace of Jesus Christ. Would you, Lord, effect change in our hearts? Would you cause us to be people who are not satisfied until everyone we know knows Help us not to be satisfied with giving out t-shirts. Help us to be only satisfied when everyone that we know knows the message. We beg of you. We're going to close a little differently, folks. Not too much. I'm going to step down and Ethan is going to lead us in a time of response just like normal. But after that time of response, we're just going to stand and sing, continue to worship. We're going to worship our way out. Having this message, hopefully the only thing on our mind, the only thing on our, on our lips as we leave these doors, respond as the, as the Lord leads you. I, I would be happy to, to do what I can to, to minister to you. but respond. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.